0: To be here today. I'm very pleased to be with you. I very much enjoyed my visit so far, and I want to commend you on the vision for the Institute and in Water and Food. The idea itself is very compelling, and I think you have a lot um, that you can do with that, and it's uh, exciting to see what you have already done and what you have planned. So, uh, thank you again for being here. Um, let me, I want to talk a little bit today. Of, about some of the work that I've done. Let me just give you a quick presentation overview. I'm going to talk about policy challenges and opportunities. They asked if I could address that a little bit. I'm going to talk about the need for interdisciplinary science, because as a social scientist and policy person, I've been involved in a lot of interdisciplinary work. Know the opportunities and the challenges of that, too. And I think in addressing the issue of water for food, you're going to have to think, obviously, transdisciplinary as well as trans-country, Transcampus, so you've got a lot of integration that you're going to need to do. I have a couple of research examples I thought you might find interesting about three different types of irrigators in the landscape in Utah, a larger landscape in Utah, so I'm going to tell you about agricultural irrigators, wetland irrigators, and urban irrigators, and then some summary observations. So first, some of the policy and challenges. I don't think we'd be having this conversation if equity issues were not involved. The issues of access to food and water is driving this whole discussion. If we were feeding everybody adequately and all we had to worry about was growth in population and feeding more mouths, it'd be one thing. But the fact that we're not feeding the ones that we already have adequately is certainly an overriding issue. Um, Water scarcity is a big issue over utilization of water in many parts of the world at the same time that needs are growing. Um, It's always connected to water quality problems because those can further limit availability and cause contamination and other sorts of health risks. We have uncertainties related to climate change and its effect on water availability and in the region I come from variability which is a very big concern I'll talk about that a little bit more. And then increasingly on our radar screen is the need to protect water for ecosystem services and functions because everything else depends on that. So we have a lot of um, issues related to uh, growing freshwater scarcity. There are a lot of policy challenges in each of those domains. But what I want to talk about is a few that I think are probably important um, in terms of addressing water for food. Um, One is getting on the policy agenda in wealthy countries where municipal water supplies for the most part deliver water that is so easily accessible, convenient, and inexpensive that citizens take it for granted and don't even think about it. We've done research on this asking people about their water their water bills. How much do you use? How much to pay? And uh, how much do you need and where does it come from? And they can rarely answer that question. Um, and so it is uh, something that they need to think about Um, framing the debates and deliberations over water trade-offs that are inevitable uh, in the face of these growing uses and more scarce and uncertain supplies is clearly a policy challenge and then in those debates how is it that we prioritize water for the critical survival needs water or to drink water for food and sanitation and can we distinguish between water needs and water wants in ways that avoid conflict. So those are just some of the concerns that are on my plate these days and that I've been thinking about. I think we have some opportunities too. Um, uh, Clearly there's a global vision in this institute, but I think fostering place-based approaches that seek to harmonize different kinds of uses is important when you're looking at how these issues relate to each other it's different to put them on a landscape than it is to put them in a town name spreadsheet of we need so many gallons for this and so many for that but until they're in a place and you're trying to look at those trade-offs it's sometimes harder. So I think that's one opportunity is looking at them in a place-based uh, way and putting water in a landscape context uh, so that we can see the beneficial uses, that's an underpinning part of appropriation law in the West. Um, and it doesn't get as much play as use it or lose it, the first in time, first in right. The beneficial use without waste is a fundamental element of the law, and how do we uh, exercise that? Um, you have a compelling need, as I said, water for food. And uh, helping people understand their own needs in relationship to others' needs, I think, uh, is an opportunity. Not just their own needs, but other people's. And then I'm um, working at the policy science interface. I'm always committed to producing policy relevant science and then promoting science-based policy. And so I think that that's an opportunity if we're doing that and doing that well. So let me just talk a little bit about the need for interdisciplinary perspectives so you know where I'm coming on talking about this. I always sort of think people interact with their environments, and we try to understand how they do that. Of course we are a species and so we're subject to natural laws that other species are subject to. Our basic biological needs and needs for survival and um, subject to pathogens and diseases. But the thing that makes us unique is we interface with the environment through a whole host of tools that we have. Science, technology, language um, that allow us to control and manipulate our environment. We have behavioral systems economic, political, social, cultural systems that shape the way we behave. And those vary across the world, around the world. And then we have conceptual systems, beliefs and perceptions, religions, values, cosmology that really influence what people do. And we need to understand that so that when we're applying science and technology in a particular context, we know the other factors that are shaping how people interact with their environment. So people respond to their environment. that shape the environment. It's very iterative over time, and at least making, uh, you know, having that understanding, I think, is important. But I think the other thing we do a lot of research in social science that tends to focus on individuals in social science. But we have other sciences, economics and policy, that uh, look at people in uh, at different scales, and so. We make a lot of individual decisions, but more often than not we make decisions as members of communities, households or social groups or communities, and so the different kinds of decisions that we make, not only as individuals but as members of these organizations is important for shaping policy. And likewise, when we're interacting with the environment, we're interacting with a lot of elements in the environment that are related to various kinds of systems. So I think it's important to take a very holistic systems view about people and their interactions with the environment. We're understanding more and more through our science how coupled the natural and the human world really are. And the coupled natural human systems initiatives within NSF and other initiatives are indicative of that. But I think the other thing that at least frames my thinking about people-environment interactions is there's a very strong time dimension. So within the whole policy literature, I think one of the things that I appreciate is Paul Pearson's work ones that look at past dependencies, because we never come at decisions and things fresh. There's always a history that is partly shaping what we do and why we do it the way we do. And so um, we uh, have these historical legacies of past, decision- past decisions. We've built infrastructure, we've built certain science and technology to do things a particular way, and that shapes a lot of times the costs or the uh, incentives for doing it differently in the future. But we make choices. We always make choices. Sometimes we don't know how much. We can make choices. And I think one of the things I'm really interested in is how we put and understand human agency and the choices people can make. And a lot of times I think the feeling of futility when uh, problems are big and complex uh, and people not knowing that do things differently. We do them differently all over the world. There's lots of ways that we can uh, shape our future and uh, so that's important. I really like a ways of knowing framework too within policy where we talk about how people come to know the world. And so I think it's important mostly because people act in the world based on lots of different ways of knowing and uh, to explain their behavior and to design policies that influence that behavior it's important to know how they understand the world and how they perceive it to be, how they want it to be. The other thing is I'm just very big on context, which is probably the reason for my talk. And so whenever I'm thinking about how it is that people are doing what they're doing in relationship to water, or larger landscapes, or various kinds of uh, resources, natural resources, The context, when and where, is always important to locate and which people and what aspect of the environment they're relating to Those are all very descriptive elements of the problem But the key is how and why are they doing what they're doing the way they're doing it And um, so in looking at people linked to water uh, and food in various ways um, Understanding how and why they're linked to the places where food is produced and why it's produced in the way it is and how it is that they use water to produce that food is really important. So it's hard to make we can make broad generalizations, but there's a lot that we really have to understand about context because I think a lot of the solutions are, are based in context. Just in terms of the need for integration within the sciences, we have human dimension scientists, policy you know policy people, economists, social scientists, anthropologists who look at humans, And often we'll look at the interaction with humans in their environment because they can't explain their behavior any other way. So they're primarily looking at humans, but they're kind of looking at the interaction. I think we often have biophysical scientists, engineers, who are looking at the physical aspects of a system, the aspects of the environment people are in or relating to. And sometimes they're looking at the people to try to understand what's happening in those systems. A lot of times, you know, we're labeled the anthropogenic. But um, one of the things that's key, I think, in terms of trying to integrate across those disciplines is having some kind of conceptual and analytic integration that scientists can use to understand the linkages between people and their environment. And So maybe even changing the focus so that the domains of inquiry are focused on how it is that they're linked is uh, really important. So linkages to the environment. Uh, is an important way that I think about it. I'm in the College of Natural Resources and so we're interested in those kinds of questions. Well, um, let me give you a couple of research examples and I've chosen to uh, tell you about three different types of irrigators uh, in Utah on area landscapes that I've worked in. And so just to orient you a little bit, uh, we're a neighboring state not that far away from you but Utah is the second driest state in the United States. If you look at, at it on a statewide annual basis, we have high seasons. Uh, Our snow and stuff give us uh, more winter precept, but we're always one of the top three, along with Nevada and Arizona. So, of course, the water laws are designed to deal with that type of scarcity, and we are a prior appropriation state, and um, so uh, that's where we're located. <clears throat> Well, in our particular context, we live in an arid, drought prone and now potentially heavily impacted climate uh, system, and uh, so some of the dimensions that we deal with uh, with water in the west is that in terms of the temporal dimensions, we have this forgotten past, and the paleoclimatologists and dendrochronologists who are reconstructing our past are showing us that we haven't seen anything that could be a lot worse in the future. Uh, we kind of ignore the present of aridity and drought and we have this uncertain future. Um, but additionally in our area we have high mountains, deserts, high variability, high spatial variability in terms of um, snowfall and uh, runoff, you saw it in Colorado this summer, high floods and. Um, And in terms of one of the issues I'm interested in of efficiency, we have a lot of situational waste. Places where people are applying the same technologies, but the context that they're applying them in could lead them to be more or less efficient. So, we're a rapidly growing state, developing economically or a lot of economic growth, and we're a highly urbanized state. So, what you'll see on this, Is the reds, pinks, different shades of red and pink is where the population concentration is. These are the Wasatch Mountains and on the western side of the state we have the Great Basin and then we have a portion of the Colorado Plateau. We live up in, I live up in Logan and up in Logan in the northern part of the state where the southern extension of the Yellowstone ecosystem and then down in St. George in the south western part of the state, we have uh, a part of the Mojave ecosystem. So a lot of this public land, we don't have that much private land in the state, a large percentage is public land, and it's a little hard to see, but crops are produced in the brown and the yellow portions on this map, which is not a lot. There's hay production, the yellow is hay, and the biggest production area is in the north part of the state in an area I'm going to tell you about, the Bear River Basin, so there's a lot of ground up there. But for the state as a whole, we are not like you. We don't have a lot of agriculture, but the agriculture that we do have has been important for maintaining people in this region for a long time. So we have a lot of changing needs, and we have ag land that's being taken out of production, both because of competition over the land and competition for the water rights. And so we've got these changing uses. These are just a couple of communities along the Wasatch Front that uh, show some urbanization um, of areas in not you know in a half a century, but uh, it is increasing at a very high rate. We are one of the fastest growing states in the whole United States, and we have several cities that are the fastest growing in uh, the United States, or in the top three. So. Um, Given that context, let me tell you first a little bit about this northern part of the state where we do have agriculture and uh, it is irrigated agriculture. We don't have, depend on rain, in the west and uh, this is the Bear River Basin. <laughs> um, it is a 500 mile long river and uh, if you had a chance to look at one of the publications I sent, it uh, tells this story. But It starts here in the High Uintas. And it crosses, it's an interstate basin, it crosses state lines five times. So it crosses from Utah to Wyoming, to Utah to Wyoming, goes up into Idaho and makes a big turn, comes back down, and um, right in this area is where Logan is is located. And uh, it ends up in the Great Salt Lake. Um, So we are a drought-prone area. And the story I'm going to tell you a little bit more about is how people have adapted to drought in this river basin where water is both scarce and it's shared. Um, and the story is about the 2004 drought, which was the worst drought that we've had in um, the second worst drought we've had in over a century uh, next to the one in the 1930s. And so this is the hydrograph of Bear Lake and this is 2004 and you see the other time it was that low. It's the elevation of the lake, which I should have pointed out a little bit more as an important part of the story. Bear Lake is a deep, very interesting, ecologically unique lake. It was connected to the river historically in geologic time. But in the early part of the 1900s, as this area got settled, what they did is they diverted and it, had, it wasn't connected at the time. You can see these two big ribbons of blue. They divert the river into the lake and use the top 21.65 feet as a storage reservoir. So the top part of this particular lake is for storage but it's a natural lake. And then during the irrigation season they bring the water back out and they deliver it to irrigators downstream. One of the things that is unique about this river basin is even though it was scouted early on for a Bureau of Reclamation Project, it never had one built. So all the dams on the river are built by a private irrigation company. You have irrigators, private irrigation company, homeowners around Bear Lake, river recreationists in this area, and there are a lot of and a lot of wildlife refuges and public lands that are closed through. So, um, In this particular um, drought, uh, I know that the uh, the, uh, main person with the Bear River Commission, who was the engineer, actually spoke in my water law policy class this this spring, that this drought unfolded, and he literally was shaking in his boots and telling the students, it is going to be a bad year, everything is predicting conflict, you know, we're really afraid that we're going to have a lot of conflict. In September, after they made it through the drought, uh, there was a symposium that was held up at Bear Lake and all of the people who, heads of irrigation companies and key people from Pacific Pacificor, the power company, um, they sat down and they looked at each other and this sort of closing reflection to the symposium and they said, my gosh, how do we do it? How do we make it through this drought with so little conflict? They surprised themselves. So, um, they had a successful uh, response to the drought and someone said, Someone should write this story and tell people how we managed to make it through. Well, so I took up this challenge and we did some interviews and we found through all the interviews that people focused on three specific innovations. One, a voluntary settlement agreement that had been negotiated in the the 91-92 drought that they signed in 1995. There have been a lot of technical and scientific work. Utah State is very big in irrigation, engineering, and there have been a lot of work done over many years to model and study the groundwater, the river flows, and so people knew this water well, not just scientifically, but through experiential knowledge. So there was a lot of technical work, and the river had been instrumented. It was a place where they were starting to put meters on uh, irrigation diversions, So in real time you could see what everybody else was taking. And then they employed these communication strategies where Pacific Corps hosted bi-weekly conference calls where everybody could get on and have their computer in front of them and see the river flows and see exactly what everybody else was taking. So then the irrigators started coordinating their deliveries. And they started uh, working through the conflict because of or what could have been conflict because of some of these things that they did. Well, one of the things in trying to under trying to understand and look at policy frameworks for trying to explain cooperation instead of conflict, a lot of policy um, frameworks and theory uh, is based on assuming conflict will occur with scarce resources. But the ways of knowing framework, Helen Ingram. Um, Ann Schneier worked in this, uh, says that people aren't necessarily self-interested. They can also be dedicated to the common good as they come to know their own needs and come to know other people's needs. And uh, the um, framework tries to look at how it is that people come to know each other and it has a lot of bridging and boundary spanning mechanisms. So one thing is, there's a lot of informational work, and this is where science and technology can come in, on disseminating information and uh, promoting understanding of the facts of what's going on in in a river. There's a lot of relational work, too. How do you get to know each other better? And so in terms of deliberating about policy objectives over time, one of the things that this uh, Ways of Knowing points out is that a lot of times we're just transferring knowledge. That can occur when people are all understanding it the same way. There's agreement on the ways of knowing. Engineers could have a conference, they're exchanging information, transferring information. There's not a lot of disagreement about it and uh, that can flow fairly smoothly. But the more and more there are different ways of knowing something, uh, you need to be involved in more translation instead of just the transfer. And so, when they're closely related but uh, overlapping ways of knowing, translation devices are are important. When there are multiple and unrelated ways of knowing a resource, what's often needed is discussions that can transform the understanding to more uh, more collective way of knowing something. And uh, in doing this, there can be boundary-spanning tools. For spanning the boundaries between different ways of knowing, so it turns out there really was over time, even though they weren't calling them these various objects and organizations and experiences that were the boundary spanning devices. They had an especially previous droughts. They had come to know the river, and they had come to know each other's needs through responding to previous droughts, and each previous drought had some innovation in the law of the river. That prepared them a little bit better to deal with the next drought, and so drought response here was definitely an over time um, thing. So, um, in terms of the drought adaptations, uh, people have adapted to the drought prone hydrology of the Bear River, but they've also adapted to each other in that context. They need to know about each other as well as about water, and so uh, that's. That's really the key uh, to how they made it through the drought. So, human adaptation to drought, we I called it a historically contextualized process where ways of knowing the particular interdependencies of human hydrology in a place are brought to bear on solving problems of water scarcity. It's them having model to know here where the return flows are, here's what's natural flow, here's what's stored water, and they're accounting for it all as it comes down the river. So um, and as they're distributing it. So the other thing is that in conflict or cooperation over water, it's a choice. So even though Mark Twain's famous phrase is whiskey, whiskeys for drinking, waters for fighting over, it's a choice, and it's not a done deal. It's not always going to be conflict, and I think people. Meaning, understanding that there are choices to be made and that they have that agency is an important thing. So um, uh, that was one of the other things we came up with, you know, kind of came to understand, we came to understand about their story. So keeping wetlands wet. I'm going to tell you about wetland farmers and that's what they will even call themselves. The interdependencies between some refuges in the area and the agricultural operations of this river. So um, it's, we protect land for wetlands. We have not done a good job protecting the water for wetlands. And so um, in this particular river basin, there are, I'm going to tell you about three different wetlands, one in Cokeville, one right at the nexus of where this water goes in and out of Bear Lake and another one down at the delta of the river with the Great Salt Lake. And so the first, ref- so here are the three refuges Coke on the Meadows, National Wildlife Refuge, Bear Lake, National Wildlife Refuge, and Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge. The Great Salt Lake is clearly a, a very important ecological resource for birds on a number of different flyways. And, um, These other refuges have been important for other species as well. So, all of these refuges in one way or another are dependent on agriculture. Um, In Copeville Meadows National Wildlife Refuge, the refuge was created once a, a high mountain valley became irrigated and birds started going there and the Fish and Wildlife Service recognized that this was really important habitat. And they started protecting this area and buying up farmland, some of it, but the refuge lands are completely interspersed with irrigation, uh, still irrigated acreage. They have agreements worked out with the irrigators and they own shares in the irrigation company to water their wetlands. They irrigate the wetlands. And so this is an example of some irrigation-dependent wetlands. But that's sort of harmonizing the use between agriculture and environmental uses. The Bear Lake National Wildlife Refuge in Idaho is a reservoir dependent wetland. It exists at the northern end of the Bear Lake and is part of the structure of how water is brought into and back out of the lake. And the lake sometimes gets high enough that it uh, floods into parts of these areas so there are some there naturally but it is actually grown with the operations of a lake as a storage reservoir. This refuge owns no water rights and no water shares. They have a few small water shares, but they are at such a strategic geographic location in relationship to the operations of agricultural water that their their access to water is actually the most secure of all. Because these are powerful interests that aren't likely to change this method of uh, managing water anytime soon. And so uh, interestingly enough, they have a fairly secure access to water. The Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge is, they're delta wetlands at the very end of the river. And because the flows of the river, they're at the very end of a highly utilized river, They don't have um, their access to water has declined over time as the floods that used to come down the river and uh, water this delta have been diverted and utilized upstream. So they have been involved over the years in creating a very extensive infrastructure of different units of the wetland by diking and diverting water in a essentially a flood irrigation pattern to maintain wetland habitat. In this particular context, things work pretty well for them because the large irrigation company that I told you is at the end of the river is actually up, is a- actually lo- located north of them and some of the land surrounding them are very um, high priced duck clubs. And they're preserved as duck clubs, so they're in this landscape where they have some compatibilities with agriculture and with recreational uses, the common interest is growing food for people or growing food for birds, but uh, they are all happy that they have each other as neighbors instead of subdivisions. So and they've worked together in fact, Part of the water that the refuge depends on in the late summer months is passed through water, voluntarily passed through by the irrigation company that gives them a share of their water that they don't have a right to but recognizes that they have a need for it and when they have extra they pass it through to them. Some of this is irrigation return flow. but. They have worked together enough, and it's the relationship between the refuge manager and the irrigation company that's made this happen. And so um, it's one of the ways that they maintain that habitat. So let's move downstream a little bit. Now I'm going to tell you about urban irrigators. This is an area I've done a lot of work in, and this is where Christopher Neal's work and mine cross over because we worked together on this for a long time. So you have this long river that flows through agricultural lands and wildlife habitats, Salt Lake City is down here on the eastern shores of the Great Salt Lake, and the mountains that run uh, to the east of Salt Lake City, they saw all those panoramic views of the Olympics, leave um, really a narrow corridor between the Great Salt Lake and the mountains to the uh, east of it. All along that corridor we've had tremendous growth in urban populations. So it's not just Salt Lake, but we call it the Wasatch Front metropolitan area. And it's a rapidly growing area. So what we have done is we've done a lot of work on urban landscape water use. And uh, we've developed a software package called Water Maps, Water Management Analysis and Planning Software, that sort of synthesizes some of the work that we've done over time. The issue that drives this is in western states, arid western states, about 60 to 70% of the residential water that is delivered to households and residences is used to irrigate landscapes, outdoor landscapes, and urban ir- uh, irrigation systems are often not well designed, maintained, or operated, so there's a fair amount of waste involved. And so conservation of water used on urban landscapes is being viewed by these municipalities as one of their key water demand management strategies to try to deal with the question of limited supplies and growing uh, use for it. So um, this is an area that we've been focusing on. What we've come to understand in the work that we've been doing is that it's not a simple technological fix of fixing the irrigation system. but We've been promoting landscape water use efficiency through contextualized system thinking. Even in a small yard, you have a system whereby there's a site condition and soils and plants and irrigation technologies and human behavior in that context that operates it to be either efficient or not. And um, and it no, understanding how this works is, is important because. Uh, Policies designed to deal with landscape irrigation that doesn't understand the human behavior part of it can lead to unintended consequences. This is a community in Colorado that we visited that had had a drought five years before we visited. And as we were leaving the utility, they told us a whole neighborhood to go drive through. They said, you need to drive through this part of town. They have the Air Force base there. This is low income, high rental properties in this neighborhood number of years ago they significantly increased the price of water during a drought and the people who could afford to pay kept their green lawns. This neighborhood, this is five years after the fact, had not recovered and we drove down streets and streets that look like this. So this uh, lower income neighborhood had been uh, sacrificed in a sense uh, in that attempt to save water during a drought and the one thing that was surprising to us is that people didn't understand that trees themselves could help shade the property and reduce the water needs of the entire landscape. So you found trees cut out and um, a lot of different things like that. So our interest is in making sure that you know people just use it efficiently but can maintain the landscapes they have. So the methods that are embedded in the software package Um, Do a couple of things, first we identify landscape type and area from overflights for these urban parcels and lots and then we integrate that with reference evapotranspiration to estimate landscape water need. We use the meter data from the cities and the GIS databases that they have to see parcels and uh, to figure out where those are. Determine landscape water use compared to need on a site-specific basis. And then as the social scientist and policy person, my job has always been to interview and interact with people to conduct social science research to try to understand the water use patterns and design appropriate water conservation strategies. For a social scientist, this is goal to have this this dependent variable that tells you exactly how much people are using, not just in volume, but with some metric of efficiency so that you can go in and try to explain that. Versus just through having self-reported data. So Chris has a plane and does the aerial imagery and um, this was his older plane but he has a newer one right now. And so he does a lot of the classification. And then what we do is we sort of define appropriateness for these urban landscapes. And we, you know, are underlying Rationale is beneficial use without waste. You don't have to tr- transition the landscape necessarily into low water. You can be efficient with what you have, and this tool grants them the landscape that they have. But notice, in different types of lots, a quarter-acre lot is not a quarter-acre lot. Different kinds of types of lots, depending on the amount of uh, grass or trees and shrubs that they have, may need more or less water. And uh, once people become efficient on existing landscapes, transitioning to native or low water use landscapes is a next step that they can go through. But it's based not so much on how, have, how much you have to or how much you can afford, but how much does your plant need? That's the foundation plant water need. And so it determines water needs for existing landscapes and the, the software packages does different things to adjust the parcel boundaries to include the parking strips that residents don't own but they're required to maintain. And then we identified capacity to conserve, utilizing this landscape irrigation ratio that estimates how much water they use for the building data, how much the landscape needs from this analysis that we've done on the landscape and taking into account the T rates and then assigns of irrigation ratio. So if they're using it efficiently, their landscape irrigation ratio should be around one. But they could be using five times the amount of water they need. And this is one small block. And you can see that the difference in how much they irrigate varies highly. And that there's a capacity to conserve, but very targeted capacity conserve. So part of this is attempting to develop conservation programs that don't just appeal to the volunteers, because we know we've learned that they're the ones who are already conserving. It's how do you then go out and deliver conservation programs to the ones that uh, you aren't on the radar screen yet. And so we've done targeted recruitment too into these. But the interesting thing is you could drive that neighborhood and you would not be able to pick out which ones use more than the others. Because they do not gain any additional visual effect for the additional water. Water waste is different than other kinds of waste. With recycling waste, it accumulates and you can visually see it. Water waste seeps into the ground and people don't know that waste is occurring, it's invisible. So, um, So anyway, this software package allows us to do this not just by delivering individual Audits per to individual households, but to do it on a service-wide area, so that then a utility could go in and direct conservation efforts to the appropriate place. So we've tried to. uh, My portion of this is to try has been trying to connect the social science and policy to you know figure out why people are doing what they're doing and how they're doing it, and then to. um, Look at what that might mean for policy responses. So we used a lot of different methods. We've interviewed focus group, water battery surveys, and uh, different kinds. We worked with businesses, households, and uh, custodians of schools. Let me tell you real quickly though about Weber Basin Water Conservancy District, a very large conservancy district in uh, north of Salt Lake City. So here's Salt Lake City down here, and. This uh, has a very large Bureau of Reclamation project, several, and has supplies water for agriculture and the and uh, pressurized secondary systems lands that have converted from agriculture to urban use, but the water came with the land conversion and secondary water systems deliver water to the landscapes and culinary water. We call it culinary water is delivered through the city to their homes. They have dual systems. They've got 30,000 connections. It has never been metered. They have trunk line meters, but they don't have meters at the individual locations. So what they were interested in doing, people have allocations, and the allocations came over at the same measurement as Act, but uh, they wanted to get a handle on whether people were actually using water within their legal allocations. They had no way to monitor that. um, and clearly, this is a basin where there are a lot of competing uses and needs for water. And so, the more they can make everyone efficient, there's a little bit more equity. It's not really an it's not equitable to allow some to waste and you know be forcing others to conserve. So they transition several neighborhoods of meters. They put them on a uh, the secondary system. But here's the key: they're not planning to charge for the water on a volume basis until they get everyone metered, because they, they think it would be inequitable. It's going to take them at least a decade to meter all of these areas. So in the meantime, we heard they were going to do this, and I said, oh my gosh, this is a great opportunity to test the usefulness of the information absent of price signal. How useful is the information, and how compelling would the argument be? Just water to meet your landscape. So we did research in connection with the pilot project, which was these three areas just uh, two years ago. And what we did is, at the beginning of their irrigation season, we sent them letters and explained everything. We sent them an initial uh, report on their property, showed them their property so we knew we had the right house, and we sent them um, these, we call them secondary water use reports. And what we'll see here, is a month by month accounting. It told them each month how much they used, how much they needed, what their landscape irrigation ratio was. The blue bars show how much water they used, the green, how much we estimated the landscape needed. And then the the, uh, brown are predictive of what, based on a 30-year average, their landscape was likely to need at the end of the irrigation season the whole point to try to get them to not just set that timer clock and water the landscape from April 1 to October 31st the same throughout the season but for them to start understanding it doesn't need as much during the spring and fall and may need some more in the winter but just have them understand that curve. This shows it to you in a little bit more detail so here's a house and here's how it performed over the course of the irrigation season. And it showed them at the end so then hopefully you know they're left with a message this is two summers ago oh next year you know maybe I can conserve and indeed this summer they realized savings from continuing to send these types of reports to people so um, you know they had uh, they actually ended up having hourly data these meters these days can give you hourly data so one thing we found in taking a look at the hourly data, at least, you know how some of the policies for landscape uh, when you get in a drought, people will say uh, cities will say, well, just water every other day, or they'll give time recommendations when you can water, but not how much you can water, right? So one of those recommendations is always don't water between ten and six because that's when the transpiration is high, and sure enough, everybody's low during those hours they're not watering but and these are the curves for, for the groups that fall within different landscape irrigation ratios clearly the ones who are overusing are perfectly capable of overusing at night and they do and the ones who are more efficient are below that curve and they're not overwatering at night so just the recommendations the policy recommendations of winter water isn't really getting at that uh, particular issue. This is just shows you that we have found that uh, irrigation systems are highly inefficient in the region that we have. And that people um, don't know. That is the confounding factor in every study we've done. People with automated systems will tend to over-irrigate. People with manual systems will tend to be more concerning for the same human behavioral tendency, which is convenience. It's convenient to overwater with an automated system because you don't have to go and change the time clock or do anything. It's convenient not to water too much if you're dragging a hose because you have to go out there and spend your time doing it. So irrigation systems at least in the urban environments that we've been studying appear to be time saving devices more than resource saving devices. But it's not a deterministic relationship. They can, you can have people that are sophisticated at using their irrigation systems and to do it well just shows that the um, very top line is how people actually were watering, so the black line is uh, what they were doing. You can see they're tracking rain events, and as I showed you there, you know, not watering during the middle of the day, but you still find this high variability. And our software program can make different assumptions about distribution uniformity, a measure of the system efficiency. And so, this one we assumed a 70% distribution uniformity. So, the gray is showing um, the difference between the gray and the solid line is showing you capacity to conserve. On the thick, they actually found that the distribution uniformity is more like 53%. If you make that assumption, they're actually what. watering to meet plant need but with inefficient systems. And they need more with inefficient, inefficient systems to meet the plant need. But people were misinterpreting distribute you know poor irrigation efficiency for plant water needs. So they weren't uh, understanding that. Here again, the 70% is on top. But if say you just tr- assumed that uh, you could get out one to 100% irrigation efficiency. All of that space between the gray area and the line is what you could save. So there's a tremendous opportunity for savings if you can even get people to increase uh, their irrigation efficiency. 93% of the households though use automated irrigation systems, 2.4% of them told us they were well maintained. So we've worked with the water check program to slow the flow in Salt Lake City And we know that this is really a big issue. Urban irrigation systems, these people aren't experienced irrigators like agriculturalists. They don't laser level their land and measure everything. They turn it on sometimes and they don't even go in their backyard for two weeks. And uh, if it could be overwiring, they may not be aware of that. Just gonna finish up telling you that we did find that people are really willing to conserve and they're motivated to do so. By a number of different reasons. Why would they be willing to conserve? And uh, they found these reports helpful because they actually didn't know that they weren't conserving or that they had that capacity to conserve. If the waste is going away and you're fearing your landscape will die, it's easy to overwater. So uh, these reports, it was a way to take our tool from a manager's level tool to an end user tool to provide these individualized reports to households. So we've kind of discovered that human behavior and urban, for urban water conservation people have good intentions, there's a lot of innocent overwatering, there's a lot of situational waste depending on where the neighborhoods are, there's longer term implications in terms of where you're going to permit those subdivisions to go because there are some areas once the subdivision is there, if people are gonna be using automatic irrigation systems, and if they don't know how to use them well, you are gonna lock in a very long-term use of inefficiency. You know, long-term inefficient use. Uh, we know there are people who are information seekers and receivers who are trying to reach the uh, receivers, the ones who will pay attention if it comes to them but aren't gonna go out seeking it. And then we've learned that conservation is really an the process over time. So, the conservation challenges for municipalities are how they broaden the influence of their conservation programs, how they identify those conservation opportunities, those capacities to conserve, and how they provide the right kinds of information to uh, help people conserve water, and and how they promote a long-term habit change so that we can be better prepared for droughts and scarcity. So just a few concluding thoughts. Um, food production systems really, to take it back to food, I've shown you a couple of landscapes in relationship to each other. The key thing is the urban areas, some of them are connected to where their water comes from upstream but not all of them. Um, and they're embedded in these larger social and ecological landscapes that are being transformed. So where does ag end up on the landscape? And where does, how is ag use harmonized with other uses of water? Um, And so looking at the needs for water in those various landscapes and trying to understand those hydrologic interdependencies and and in a landscape context forcing people to confront the trade-offs. That's what irrigators did in the Bear River Basin for many years. They kept confronting the trade-offs. I think that that's some, um, you know, an area that needs attention. So um, I think in promoting policies and practices that promote water for food, we also need to cross societal scales of decision making. Work with individuals, work with municipalities, work with larger policy makers to make sure that the uh, policies we're developing um, are consistent across those scales and. and I, we have a lot of disincentives to conserve that are embedded in the contracts of municipalities with the conservancy districts that are hard to um, overcome. They want to sell all the water they have because they're dependent on the revenues. So they like conservation in the ground, but they're not sure they like conservation on an everyday basis because they might not be able to pay for uh, pay for their infrastructure. So uh, with that. I will conclude and thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate it. Well, thanks uh, very, very much, uh, Joanna. That was really, really interesting. Um, as we do have time for maybe a couple of quick questions, and as we said earlier, those who would like to stay behind uh, are more than welcome. Did the people in the urban areas ever get to see what their leaders were using or what their, their uses were compared to other people? In other words, if they were using way more, would they strain? Mm-hmm. There has been some public shame um, with the big end users. Uh, Salt Lake Tribune had a big expose. Mm-hmm. Carl Malone ended up being on at the Catholic Diocese. You know, properties, they were doing it on a volume basis. Who used the most? They had their properties too. Um, We haven't done that yet, we are trying to collate the information partly at a neighborhood scale to protect some identities because if we did do that we fear that the municipalities would not be willing to work with us and give us the data even though it's public systems they're fairly protective of the billing data. So we have had data that a lot of other researchers haven't had through some sort of you know, with some trust. So we've we've tried to keep people focused on how much the landscape needs, but that's the other dimension. You know, and this would be important because if you can show them, hey, you could maintain your landscape because your neighbor's doing it, you know, and they've managed to do it. But we found some informal sharing of information between neighbors once they started getting these reports, and they started comparing on their own and trying to see. So I think there's a co- competition, but not competing with each other for water, competing to try to be conserving that that information could help um, in setting Yeah, that, that's a good question. We've wrestled with that one. Yeah, so, uh, speaking of, of fellow social scientists, what we know in general chaining doesn't work very well in the, the long term. Mm-hmm. So to get back to the issue of how do you avoid conflict, by using a training approach rather persuasion and saying, norms of how people do that kind of stuff? Um, you're actually sowing the seed for future conflict people get defensive. And we've also been concerned in neighbor in neighborhoods where everyone would overuse, comparing them to their neighbors doesn't help you get more efficient. Yeah. So, you know, it depends on the nature of the neighborhood. And economic incentives, they found, are sort of short-term Once The economic incentive goes away sometimes. The behaviors are long-term. So we're pretty convinced that, you know, it's still that long-term, ethical, um, internalized approach to doing the right thing for the collective that could over the longer term be the most important. Both so residential and, uh, and also, it's all the water No. That's a problem. Right. In this area, that meter transition project was their, fir- their first three areas they did. So they have 30,000 connections. They did 1,000. So they're going to start to meter those. And we think even just knowing how much you use, and am I using too much? Because that's what people would tell us a lot of times in our studies. Well, am I using too much? I don't know. I have no idea. It tells me how many gallons. But how much should I be using? And they will often ask, well, how much do my neighbors use? And am I efficient compared to those? But um, a lot of the uh, uh, the, river, the river is very well metered and most of the ag is metered right now. Municipal systems are metered. But it's some of these ag cultural transition areas where they were ag land, they came over and they came over with a fairly generous duty of water. There was the duty of water for ag. So some of them have actually a legal right to use three acre feet per acre, but there's a house in the middle even so, you know. Um, and so so what I might have cut it out. What we found is that even among those metered connections, there were some that were using less than 50% of their allocation, the really efficient ones. And others were using 200% of their allocation, twice as much. So even you did have a tool there, hey, you're using more than your allocation. But the allocation they know about from their property bill, you know, not from these reports, and some of them don't, they varied a lot in that area. So it's kind of how they made the conversions is kind of a big question. Yeah. Uh, On the software package, how how well is it distributed through the municipalities? And did it only measure the use of water in the landscape, or did it measure total household usage? Like somebody's using water for unlimited showers or unlimited laundry or whatever, versus how much they consume water. Well, that's a good question. So, um, we have worked mostly so far with a couple of test municipalities. We've worked with the city of Logan, we've worked with Layton, uh, we've been uh, starting to work with North Salt Lake, we've worked with the Legal Basin Water Conservancy District. The entire city, or just selected here? um, we were working with the managers. This information tool that's providing it to the end user, this was first done in these we basin transition areas. But to answer your question, a lot of the municipally supplied water, um, people just have one connection, right? So they're watering their lawn and uh, using it indoors. So we dealt with that one of two ways. Uh, first, we have snow on the ground most of the year and we really discourage irrigation during the winter. <laughs> um, it still happens, but we try to discourage it, um, you know, that's a long story. But most people have shut their systems down and, you know, had the water blown out so that they don't freeze and all that kind of stuff. But when it's one connection, we take the indoor use, the average winter indoor use for that household and assume that it's constantly around. It's rough. And when you got 60 to 70 percent, you know, um, of, the, of the amount that's used outdoors, uh, the, the winter use has helped. We could also use, and in some areas we used, um, the census data for each neighborhood and how much, how many people per household, but it varies so much. We have retirees with two people and people with eight kids. And so the indoor use will vary. So we, when we can get that measurement, you know, we use the indoor use. This allowed us to separate because it was metered data totally for secondary systems. It was just totally a landscape water signal. But when we have regular municipal data, we have to try to um, back out the indoor use. So indoor use is another area for water conservation. Which is more. Which is more what? Indoor have to use that much more. Yep, it's sixty to seventy percent. Oh yeah, it's a lot more. And the thing that's happened indoors is that um, for the most part, the uniform building codes that were passed in the early '90s started taking care of indoor use because you can't go buy a high flow toilet unless you're in the black market these days. You know, I mean, they they circulate, but we and you can't go and replace the toilet with um, out of well flow. In fact. A lot of municipalities where we live are starting to decide it's going to take care of itself over time. It's too much work to try to do these toilet rebates and all this stuff. People are going to eventually replace the stuff. They're going to replace their washing machines. And when they go to the store to buy a new appliance, they're only going to be able to get a low-flow one because that's what's on the market. So you've got a lot of technological changing doors that solve some of it. Low-flow showers, low-flow toilets, flow that kind of stuff. You still have some behavioral change, you know, and people, when you ask them, what are you doing to conserve water, well, I try to take short showers. I try to um, not run the water when I'm brushing my teeth. You know, they've got those rules and they're kind of trying to do that, but they don't say, well, I could go have an irrigation specialist come and fine-tune my irrigation system. Never. Right? They don't say that. So you know you could have indoor behavioral rules, you know the, flush it down and those kinds of things. But you know the indoor uses are for cooking, for sanitation, for things like that. And you can limit them somewhat. But you know, so we're focused on the outdoor because that's where at least in our very arid environment, growing landscapes that look no different than they would on the east coast might not be the most beneficial use of water when we also need water to grow food and to grow fern habitat and things like that. So we, you know, finding other aesthetically pleasing outdoor landscapes. you know, one thing all the conservancy districts have just gorgeous um, native plant and low water use gardens as demonstration gardens out our They are so beautiful, people hold weddings there. You know they are really nice, so there's good examples of trying to get people to understand the landscapes that might be more appropriate to place. But I, that's a good question, and if we have wrestled with the indoor too, but we're more on that Let's take this last question, and then um, I think I'll bring it to a close for so that people can feel free to leave, and those who are really dedicated can stay. Okay. So please. Thank you so much. This is. Marvelous! Um, I teach in the landscape architecture department Ooh. here, and love your continuum of human scientists to uh, physical, biophysical scientists, and I, I consider myself something of an applied scientist as a designer. Um, I'm interested in your comment about water quality, and you had uh, irrigated uh, agricultural landscapes right next to uh, bio reserves. And uh, interested in how you uh, nitrogen flow off the agricultural landscapes and are you are there buffer zones being put in, or how is, or is it, are you just allowing the algorithms and whatnot to be part of the, the reserves? Um they do have some buffer zones and they're dealing with it. But the thing that has been um, important, you know, and there is some, you know, pressure but there have been programs in the agricultural land. But they see the effect. I mean, they're working with the wetland, the wetlands coming back to them, and then the buffer in between them is these are amazingly high-priced duck clubs. I mean, one is called the million dollar duck club. There are 30 numbers, you know, but your cost for getting into it is phenomenal, and your annual cost is just even more phenomenal. Um, very exclusive clubs, and they are actually in this whole landscape absolute best managers of go the land. They are on top of every single invasive species, any kinds of things that are happening. They're managing their land very, very well. And they're working in this context too because they have a lot of interest in maintaining that habitat and doing it well. And many are big philanthropists and they care about this landscape and uh, they meet visitors to this place. And so, um, it's in those conversations they're starting to address water quality. But it is an issue, and it's on our radar screen, but the one good thing is it's not a community, you know, uh, the consequences are 20 miles downstream. They're next door. And I think working across that fence and seeing, you know, that's the feedback loop. That's the other thing that we need more, and our information tool is the feedback mechanism. People want to conserve, but in the end they go, what good did it do? They'd like to help address global warming, but so, you know, what did my little efforts do? I don't think it really helped, but when they can see their own, some feedback mechanism of their own, and we have some of those, you know, the ecological footprint, the large footprint, different things that are attempting to give that feedback, but when they can see it in the place, too, Um, and cumulatively, we think that the a big um, incentive to concert from a social science point of view is understanding, wow, look what happens when we all do it together. I mean, you know, you won't see these thermometers when they're raising money, right, for the local senior center, you know, being notched up if people weren't somewhat motivated by the fact that, wow, you know, a little bit more, and we can make it. Or they wouldn't be motivated to buy more football tickets, right? Here in Nebraska, if it wasn't like, man, we got this record we gotta keep going, we gotta sell out each and every time, right? Now there's this huge sort of communal incentive to uh, keep keep that success going, you know. So I think more and more when we individualize the perspectives, it gets, you know, people people have trouble understanding. So we think, I think that the motivation is in hopefully spanning the individual. To the more collective and societal. And the municipalities need to be letting people know where that water goes. That's one of the things we've been talking about because the thing they don't want to conserve water for is to fuel urban growth. And that's exactly where it's going right now. But at some point, it's allowing them to delay taking more water out of the Bear River. But there is a development act that eventually will go get water from the Bear and take it down to those municipalities. Most people can serve them and so, uh, you know that they don't have to do that. So, but how you visualize those feedback mechanisms, so I think, is an important issue that we need to deal with as a society. Thank you all for your attendance and your attention and your questions. I appreciated it very much. And thank you, Joanna, and thank you all.